I think I might get a little, um, what's the word I used a couple weeks ago? Um, lit up? Um, that's not the word I'm looking for. Levi, what's the word I'm looking for? Impassioned? Yeah, but that's not it either. But you know what I mean. I might get kind of like animated. That's, I think, what I'm looking for. Okay. I might be more animated today. I'm a cartoon character. Okay. Well, 40, what, two years and I find out she thinks she married Fred Fred Flintstone. That's right. Okay. Enough about that. Um, I, I have passion about this. And um, I, people could convince people stuff because they just, it's like, wow, look at that passion. And so that must be true. But you need to not be swayed by if I get all worked up. You need to be swayed by the Word of God. And, and that's where you need to hang your hat because that's where you need to hang your hat. So I, I, I don't know if I'm apologizing or not, but I'm just telling you, I might get a little bit worked up today. So we're, we're I, I started this one last week, but for the sake of, if I'm honest, potluck, but maybe time, um, I just trimmed it a little bit, most of it, I trimmed it. So we'll come back and we'll do this today. It's it's responding to this Barna survey that um, asked these, they didn't ask questions, they weren't questions, they were biblical truth statements. And then the percentage of people that would identify themselves with Jesus Christ that disagreed with those truths, and it's shocking. It's really, really shocking. So just just quick review, the first three, the first Sunday that I touched these, the first three, these are the biblical truths. The Bible is the Word of God. It is trustworthy and reliable. God is the basis of all truth, and people are not basically good. We are sinners. Those three statements are absolutely true, but I would say from the, I don't have the statistics in front of me, greater than 50% of the people that identified themselves with Christ on any one of those three would deny their truth. That's really, really scary. If that's you and you're bold, you know, you don't have to write this minute, but call me and let's let's look through the scriptures and, and pray together and figure out how you could have um, an opinion that would come against those truths. Then the next Sunday, we the truth was people cannot earn a place in heaven by being good or doing enough good works. That's the truth statement, and that is true. No person can be with God eternally, can be reconciled unto God based upon their own goodness. If they think that, they have been deceived that they have any goodness in them at all because the standard is not you against my goodness or me against your goodness. It's all of the world, every human being that's ever been conceived against the perfection of God himself. And nobody, nobody can stand next to that test. Only in Christ Jesus can you be righteous. There's one left to tackle, I think. There's more questions, but there's one more after this week to tackle. And that one is this. People cannot earn a place in heaven. No, no, that's the wrong one. This is the one. When Jesus Christ was on the earth, he was fully human, and he did not sin. That's like a gospel one, big time, right? So, so there, there are people that would deny, you know, the, the, ba- the battle is over denying the deity of Jesus. That's what everybody wants to fight about. But 
denying the humanity of Jesus is equally messed up as denying his deity. And there are people that say that that Jesus was a great guy, but he wasn't sinless. Paul says that if there's no resurrection of Christ, then your faith is vain because there is no resurrection outside of Christ. There was no offering for your sin. So if Christ wasn't resurrected, then there is no reconciliation for mankind. And everybody is going to die in their sin. And then they will, for all of eternity, pay the unpayable debt for their sin against God. If Jesus had any sin, then he didn't rise from the grave. And our faith is vain. So to have a sense that Jesus was sinful in any way at all would be to deny the opportunity for anybody to ever be saved. So that's, that's a meaty bit that, that I think, you know, God willing, we'll deal with that one next week. So then today, I'm going to take two of the questions and answer them, respond to them together, not question statements. So these are the two biblical truths that we're going to tap on today. Number one, there are, there are absolute moral truths that apply to everyone all the time. There's people that say that's not true, that, that there are not absolute moral truths. And we could talk for three months on how we know that's true, but that is a true statement. There are absolute moral truths, and they apply to everyone, and, and we'll see that here this morning. And the second statement is this, the Bible is the primary source of moral guidance. Many, many people say that that's not true, that you can gain your moral guidance from someplace else. Now, you could stumble stumble over a moral truth someplace else, but it's only a moral truth if it's also in the Scriptures. Because, yeah, the Bible is the primary source of moral guidance. Now, I would have changed that if I was Barna, like, you know, like, like I went to college or something. But I wouldn't say the primary source because that leaves some other sources available. I'd say it's the absolute source. It's the only source for moral truth. So then before we go further, let's take and try to define morality. And understand that morality, well, let me just give you the, uh, the dictionary definition because I think it works really well, even biblically. Morality, principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong or good and bad behavior. Okay. Okay. Principles concerning the distinction, like how do we distinguish, between right and wrong or good and bad behavior. Now, all behavior falls into one side or the other. It's either moral or it's immoral. It's either good or it's bad. It's right or it's wrong. In the New Testament, the word that you typically see is the negative of morality, immorality. And it speaks primarily, maybe exclusively, I honestly didn't study it that deep to know, but primarily that speaks to sexual immorality. Hey, all the parents in the room, remember what I whispered in your ears last week? I'll whisper it again. You know, I'm going to talk about one thing, it's probably not a big deal, but I just wanted you to have a heads up about uh, one thing. If you didn't want your kids here, I'm looking, I'm not seeing them in here. So, yeah. Jacob's 
under 21, but he's over 15, so he can stay. New Testament morality is, is, is primarily speaking to sexual immorality. And then it speaks to the other issues of immorality specifically. Like it speaks specifically to idolatry. Idolatry is immoral. It speaks to covetousness. Covetousness is immoral. But it, it, it uses those and lets them just stand on their own, and it lumps sexual immorality under that actual word. So that's the specific conversation that we'll have this morning. How do you distinguish between what's right and wrong and what's good and bad behavior? What's your standard? Where does it come from? That's, that's the issue, right? Okay. First statement, there are absolute, there are absolute moral truths that apply to everyone all the time. Here's the people in the church that disagree with that. In the group they call evangelicals, 52%. In the group that would identify themselves as Pentecostal, 69% disagree. Mainline denominations, 58% disagree. Catholic people, 69% disagree. I know, it's mind-blowing, isn't it? It's like, yeah. Maybe the progressive church is a lot bigger than I suspected. I don't know. So then the second statement is this, and I'm going to use mine. The Bible is the absolute source. I shouldn't. I'll use his because that's what they responded to. The Bible is the primary source of moral guidance. Evangelicals that disagree, 42%. Pentecostals that disagree, 38%. Mainline denominations, 71%. And Catholic people, 77%. Those people think that there's someplace else that they can get their morality defined that obviously could disagree with the Bible. So let me just reiterate from that one of those very first questions that first Sunday. It all, it all boils down to where do you get your truth? Is the Bible your basis for truth or isn't it? If it's not, then what is your basis for truth? What you think, how you feel, what somebody said, your experience. It boils down to that. And it's hard to understand or imagine that there are churches where people are teaching one another that they can question the scriptures. But there must be. The only one that, that I would say I kind of understand is the Catholic Church. And I'm no, I'm no Catholicism doctrine expert, but I've listened to people that I trust that have actually looked at the, the declared doctrines of the Catholic, Catholic Church. And if my understanding is correct... In our world, right, if you, if you ever sat under my teaching, I would tell you that the absolute authority, there's no authority above this authority, is the Word of God. It's the, it's the Scriptures. If, if you have a dispute or a debate or a question or a concern or a disagreement, you go to the Scriptures and you get your answer. And what the Scripture says is right, that answered your question. Your debate is over. Sometimes you've got to work hard to find it because not everything is explicit. But, but that's, that's the authority. There's no pastor authority. There's no anybody authority that's greater than, I had a revelation from God, that's the Mormon guy. And, and they took the scriptures and they put them over here, and they took that as new revelation, and they said the scriptures no longer are the absolute authority. This guy had golden tablets, and that's our new authority. 
you'll never hear that from me. If you do, I give you permission to anoint four bouncers, and you drag me out, and you put me in the road, and never let me come back. Okay. But Catholic doctrine says that equal, if I understand it correctly, equal to the Scripture in authority is church tradition and the Pope. And also, if I'm not mistaken, that the Pope is infallible. So, you know, if the Pope says something that disagrees with Scripture, you got to listen to the Pope because he can't make a mistake. And I hear, you know, just in reports, I don't know because I didn't hear him speak. I don't know the guy. But some of the stuff that seems to be coming off of his lips it can't be coming from heaven. There's just no way because it absolutely is contrary to Scripture. So Catholic person says, well, the Pope said it's okay, so it's okay. I'm telling you, if Pat Brady says it's okay and the Bible says it's not, you need to live by that the Bible says it's not and stop listening to Pat Brady. Okay. Those are the percentages. So I'm going to start with the conclusion. You heard this last week. I'm going to share it with you again. I just want to, I want to make, I want to make like, um, I'm unbending about certain things. Pretty much anything that's biblically you know, like if you wanted to argue with me about end times, you could bend me because I, I don't see an absolute answer that I, I would just drive a stake in the ground and I'd say, no way, this is it. I don't see that as fundamental to whether we can have a relationship with God, that if, you're, if your understanding of end times was messed up, you couldn't be saved. I don't see it that way. You could have a totally messed up eschatological perspective and you still could go to heaven and, and you could still be born again. But stuff that's pretty much clear... I will seem like like I have no compassion. I do, because I struggle with stuff. Man, my wife could tell you, if I wasn't about to myself, about getting off the freeway to find some place. We, went, we drove over 2,000 miles this past week after we left the potluck, right? Got off at an exit in some place to, to find a bathroom. Get back on, like get on this road onto this road, which to get on the freeway going that way, two lanes like this, and, and I'm thinking that you're going to get on the freeway from over here, right? It's like two two seconds to get in the right spot. And it turns out to go that way, you had to be in the left lane and do a loop-de instead of a this. I'm in the wrong spot. I got no room to fix it. I got my blinker on. I'm coming over, and some guy raced up because he couldn't have me in front of him. And I did not respond in the Lord. I mean, I didn't curse words, right? But, you know, God reads my heart. And <laughs> my point is this. <laughs> it happened twice. Um, my, my point is this. When, when I sound like I'm being strong, it's not from the position of I'm perfect. It's just from the position I know. I believe what the Bible says, and, and I, can't, I can't be like, well, don't you understand we love each other? And we, you know, yeah, we're, you know, we're sleeping together like a married couple, but you know, we're pretty much going to get married, you know, and it's like you can't do that. Well, who are you to say so? It's like you cannot do that. You can't. It's immoral. It's contrary to God. You said that Jesus would be the Lord of your life, and you would live your life according to him as a, as a disciple, as light of the world. You can't do it. Do you understand why they want to? Sure I do. I mean, gosh, I, I, I got mad at the guy when I should have been graceful and considered him more highly than myself and let God deal with it. And I screwed up. But there's no way that we can give license to stuff 
that God says is wrong. Okay. So that's what this is all going to sound like. It's going to be very strongly worded, but if you try to tap dance around it, you're just not doing yourself a favor. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. Your morality is not your determining factor of whether you be saved or not. Your determining factor of whether you be saved or not is whether or not you would confess the lordship of Jesus. You would give your life to Christ and and whether you trust that his work at the cross, that his life was perfect and that his sacrifice was full and complete payment for your sin debt to God. That's called faith. Those two things together are called saving faith. That what determines whether you can have a relationship with God. This and how, how your life reflects this determines whether or not you actually did have faith. So if your life reflects this, then you probably never actually expressed faith. But, but abiding by these rules isn't what gets you reconnected to God if you're not connected to God. But it's an indication of whether you are or you aren't. But we don't want to be people that would believe falsehoods. And then, you know, once you open the door a little, it's hard to not let more come in there. Okay, first statement. There are absolute moral truths and standards for all people. There are. They are established by God. They don't change. They don't change with time. They don't change with culture. They don't change with attitudes. They're absolute and they're eternal. They are known, they are known, like people know them, as they are declared in Scripture and written on the consciences of all people. You know them because you read your Bible and it teaches you. If you never read a Bible, you're accountable to your conscience because God has made sure that you know. You have it written into your heart and your conscience will speak to you whether you pay attention to your conscience or you ignore your conscience. There is no person who gets a pass like, well, I just didn't know because you do know. They apply to the church, these moral truths, and they apply to the world. They don't not apply to the world because they haven't given their life to Jesus, because they're absolute. There is one moral truth giver. He gives moral truth, and every person is accountable to it. The church is accountable from its confession. When you took on what Jesus did for you, there was an exchange that happened. You got his righteousness. He paid for your sin debt. In order for that transaction to happen, you said that he would be the Lord of your life and you would serve him. So according to your confession, you're accountable to God's will that we see in the word of God. The world is accountable in judgment. So if somebody never, ever, ever confesses Jesus, they, they, they ignore him, they reject him, they don't believe in him, whatever their purpose is, they're accountable to these moral standards in judgment. They're going to be judged, and they're going to be accountable, and they will pay because they ignored God's way. They're accountable in judgment. The world can do as they please, Establish different moral standards from whim to whim 
But in the end, God will judge everyone based upon his, God's standard. Do you understand that? Right? We, we have, um, we have um, a school of thought that says sexually you just do what you want. That spirit's been in the world for probably ever, but it's been really strong for the last 50 or 60 years. Taking ground, taking ground, taking ground. Well, you can't tell me because this makes me happy. Well, okay, but you don't get to decide, ultimately. God has already decided, and you're going to have to come and stand before him and be judged based upon what you thought was okay when it wasn't okay. You don't get a pass because you just wanted to be happy, and God should understand that that's not going to happen. You're accountable to him. Everyone is. So then let me just give you some some bullet point things on defining sexual immorality. Pornography is immoral. It's immoral. It is absolutely 100% no room for wiggle immoral. If you look at it, you need to stop. If you think you can't stop and you're a Christian, you can stop. How do I know that? Because the scripture says you are not a slave to sin. There is no sin that can dominate you. If you still say, I can't stop, then I say get saved. No, no shame in thinking you were and you weren't. Get saved. And then go back to B, no sin shall dominate you. It cannot. And you can quit. If you still don't quit, then you just need to stand in the mirror and admit to yourself you don't want to. For whatever reason. You might have a busted heart. You might have got raped by... Who knows who when you were a little kid? Man, and, and, and that's, that may be what the devil is using to bring a person into a place where they would live in this sinful behavior of pornography. Nobody would judge you for your struggle, but anybody would love to minister to you out of that struggle. Pray with you. Intercede on your behalf. Ask Holy Spirit, what's the lie that, that I'm believing that, that I need this to comfort me or to hide me? Like why people get drunk, right? People with messed up lives get drunk and they take drugs and things. Why? So that they can hide themselves. They don't want to experience that. So when you're bombed, you don't experience that stuff. There's, there's the same kind of thing happening when people look at pornography, for example. It's, it's a sick medicine some way or another. But you can get healed. And you can get delivered. Keith used to be a drug guy and a drinking guy. Not anymore. Not one bit. How come? Because God moved in. He sought him out and delivered him from those things. Fornication. Fornication is when unmarried people have sexual relationships. Relationships. It's immoral. You can say we love each other. Loving somebody that you have sex with that's not your spouse is immoral. There's only one moral exercise of sex. I don't know, exercise doesn't seem like the right word, but you know what I mean, right? Application of sex. It's between a husband and a wife. Anything that's any expression outside of between a husband and a wife is immoral. It's sinful. So fornication, when, when unmarried people have sex, that's immoral. Homosexual sexual relationships are immoral. They're wrong. Homosexuals, there, there are teachers 
that teach that God ordains homosexual relationships the way he does married heterosexual relationships. Hear me, he does not. Heterosex, I guess. Homosex, thank you. Homosex is immoral. Now, maybe that, that, that phrase applies to men, but lesbian is for ladies. It's immoral. doesn't matter how much they love each other. doesn't matter how, how much they're committed to one another, how, how their, their fidelity towards one another. They don't do it with anybody else. It's immoral and it's wrong. And they need to repent if they want to have any relationship with Jesus. And then lust in the mind, sexual lust in the mind is immoral. Unless I guess it's for your wife or your husband, maybe that's okay. But sexual lust towards someone who isn't your husband or your wife. Imagining, now you could have a thought. (laughs) You could have a thought. But that thought might not be your own thought. I think it becomes immoral once you decide what to do with it. You know, some you're at the beach and somebody presents themselves in a way that's, oh, you've got to decide what to do with it. If you put it down, I don't think you, 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 you did wrong. But if you entertain it and you start thinking things, you're behaving immorally and you need to repent from that. And praise God that he is gracious and righteous, that when we confess our sins, he doesn't expect that we're never going to, have a sin, but when we do, he's gracious and he's righteous to forgive us our confessed sin. I I don't know if you don't confess it, what happens, but I know if you confess it, he forgives it and he cleanses us of all unrighteousness. So everything that you'll hear assumes that the word of God is true, it's reliable, and all of mankind is accountable to it. If, if you don't agree with that, then you can still argue with me about all this. But, but if you make that stake, you pound that into the ground, that you're going to get your morality, you're going to get your teaching, you're going to get your understanding of life from the scriptures, then this will be good for you. Last thing before I get into the scriptures is, it's hard to take a thing like, there is absolute morality defined by the scriptures and then glean only that from the scriptures because they, they often speak in a broader sense. So if you're going to say to yourself, well, I thought you were just going to prove to me that that, that is true. Why are you telling me that I shouldn't be immoral? It's because you can't have that conversation without the other conversation. The, the scriptures just blend them together and they just go together too much. So you get some exhortation as well as some scripture that would indicate to you that God is the definer of morality. So I'm going to go uh, to a long bit in Romans chapter 1, but let me take from Romans chapter 2 to set it up. Some of this stuff I've already said, but I'm going to show you in the scriptures now. Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 15. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So if Paul is speaking to a Jewish person right here in this this letter they know what the law is it's it's enumerated for them you know chiseled into stone uh, they know the law if they sin against that law then they're judged by that law but what's interesting he says but if you if you aren't under the law like a Jew is under the law if you're a gentile or sometimes you'll call greek you're not under the law 
the Hebraic law, the Mosaic law, you're still judged. If you sin under the law, you're going to perish with the law. If you sin outside of the law, you're going to perish outside of the law. But either way, you're going to perish if you break God's law. 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, capital L, do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. When I say you're accountable, even if you don't have, nobody's ever read you the rules of life according to God, you say, how can I be accountable? There it is right there. It's because you know, because God wrote them in your heart, and he's given you a conscience to read them such that you know. So chapter 2 sets up chapter 1 in that God defines through the Bible and the conscience of mankind what is and is not moral, and that nobody, whether you've read them or you haven't read them, has any excuse before God because he says here that you are going to perish outside. You're only just if you keep the law. Now, we understand that nobody is just by keeping the law, right? This indicates that it's possible if you could, but you can't. So everybody is unjust in need of a Savior, but you're not... You don't get a pass because you're not Jewish and you're not under the law. We're all accountable to God's morality. Okay, now then, Romans 1, 18 through 32. I'll, I'll try to inflect with my voice so I don't go back over all this a second time. The, the parts that I really want you to hear. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Hear this now. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God... The world is they, right? We understand. It's not like the educated people in the Bible. It's the world, every single person. For um, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So, so in their own process, they exchanged the glory of God for their own glory, so to speak. Verse 24, and hear this, at least three times, you're going to hear the phrase, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. What that says is that, that there is a restraining force of God that keeps the world from going absolutely out of its gourd. But there can come a time when you so reject the truth of God that he'll just turn you over to that which your flesh would do on its own. And then there are scholars that say 
that that is a form of God's wrath. That, that he is expressing his wrath by not restraining you from your own evil. And, and therefore, as you express yourselves in these, uh, you suppress the truth and unrighteousness because the restraints have been taken off. You are heaping on yourself incremental wrath for the day of wrath. So every... <laughs> Amen. Every single sin increments the magnitude of the wrath that a person will uh, experience for all of eternity. So it's, it's, it's an actual expression of God's wrath when he takes away those restraints from us or them. I don't want to be one of them. Okay, so 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature. I think that means themselves. They worship and serve themselves rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman, and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts, and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but they all, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Yeah, I don't know who said wow, but wow. I mean, wow. Yeah. So, his truth and his righteousness are known. And there is no excuse. Nobody's going to get a pass. But God understands that. Nope. He's made a way for that part to not be part of you. Even even as a saved person, if you stumble, he's made a way for you to be cleansed of all unrighteousness. But the person who continues to say, well, thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you, God, and their heart isn't truly repentant, the Bible says God shall not be mocked. God will not be mocked. That which a man sows, he will also reap. So if, if you think somehow... Because it says so, you can have a sinful life and be okay. You can't. It either indicates that you're not saved. I don't know what else it indicates, but you won't mock God in that in that way of thinking, and you'll reap from what you sow. First Corinthians six nine and ten, and this is written to the church at Corinth. And in, I think it's 2 Corinthians 13, maybe it's 1 Corinthians, Paul says examine yourselves to see if you're actually in the faith unless that you fail the test and find out that you're not. This scripture is a test yourself scripture. 
Can a Christian commit adultery and, st- adultery and still go to heaven? The answer is yes. But a Christian who lives in an adulterous way and isn't repentant from that sin is indicating that the truth is not really in them. So be careful that the devil doesn't get us to think that we're accountable to law to be saved. We're not. We're accountable to God's grace by way of our faith in him. But these list, I call them list scriptures, are how he warns us to have a sense for whether or not we actually are. If you wonder about that, read First John. He goes into that, like the one who behaves this way belongs to God and the one who behaves that way as a practice of their life belongs to the devil. Huh? Like the guardrails. Yeah, well, they're guardrails because you shouldn't do them, but they're indicators because if that's how you're living your life, what it's telling you is you actually don't have God living inside of you. His seed does not abide in you. Yeah. Okay, so here's where I'll get just a little dicey. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, remember that word, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, remember that word, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So, From the sexual immorality end of things, we have fornicators, people that have sex with each other outside of marriage. We have adulterers, married people that have sex with people that are not uh, their husband or wife. We have the effeminate, and we have homosexuals. The one that's a little dicey that I wanted to warn you about is I didn't know what effeminate meant. I mean, literally until probably the last year. I'm thinking I have a mental idea of what an effeminate guy is like. You know, not a cross-dresser necessarily or anything, but just a guy who seems more cheeky, you know? And I, I thought, how in the world does God judge that? How does he judge a guy who's effeminate, you know? It turns out he doesn't. Effeminate in, in this context is defined as the passive partner in a male homosexual relationship. Huh. So that makes sense to you, right? If you think of... Of, of two men trying to act like a man and a woman, one would kind of take the place of the male, be the male part, and the other would be the woman part. That effeminate one, that, that's the effeminate one, who would be the passive one. I, I mean, I don't want to be any more graphic, but you get it, right? Okay, good, thank you. Do not be deceived. It's important to really, really put weight on do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And from First John we know that the righteous will not behave this way. First John indicates to us that if a person is born again, this is not the pattern of their lives. It doesn't mean they might not stumble, and then they have to go to God, confess their sin. He'll forgive them from that sin, and he will cleanse them of all unrighteousness. If they think that I can just act like this all the time and have my cake and eat it too, then they're a mocker of God, and they will reap from which they sow because God won't be mocked in that way. But practically, if, if you stole something for whatever reason, you were a thief, and you repented, you, you felt a repentant heart, you can go to God and he'll cleanse you of all unrighteousness. But if you think it's okay to live this way, then what First John would tell you is you're actually not saved. First Corinthians chapter 6 
a little further back now, chapter or verses 15 through 20. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. You know, the scripture speaks to rebellion, church rebellion, God, God's people rebelling against him as being adulterous. And this paints that same picture. And make them members of a prostitute. May it never be. Verse 16. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So just, I mean, I got a whole bunch of little notes here, but, and I'll probably, they're probably in there, but there's two key points that I want you to understand. And if you set your mind this way, it makes all of this so much easier. The first one here is, you are not your own. I'm not my own. Well, it's, it's my body, isn't it? I can do with it what I want. Well, practically you can do whatever you want with that body that you carry. You, you, can, you can use your members in a holy way or you can use your members in an unholy way. But you need to understand that when you got saved, you ceased to be your own. You became the possession of Jesus Christ. That he's to be sanctified as Lord of your hearts. Not you, not your wishes, your opinions, the things that please you. None of those things. If you understand that you're owned, you were bought with a price. And you say, well, you know, think of a slave that, that some, some guy harvests a bunch of people in Africa, chains them up, puts them on a boat, claims them as their possession. I own these people. Brings them across the ocean, marches them off the boat, and sells them as if they're his property to other people who are going to use them as their property. Who sold them? It was unjust. It was wrong. Because they had never agreed to be part of that process. But you did. When you got saved, you sold yourself to Jesus. He paid for you with a price. What was the price? His blood. His sacrifice. You said, I want to make a deal with you, Jesus. If you would shed your blood on my behalf, I will give myself to you. That's why we're to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We're to not consider our lives dear to ourselves because we don't have one. It's not ours anymore. Once you decide that, it doesn't mean you might never stumble in your thoughts or get mad when you're driving or, heaven forbid, fornicate or adulterate or whatever. But you have to understand that what you did was against him because it's not yours anymore. You gave it away. You sold it away. You didn't give it away. There was a high price paid for it. Okay, so one sentence, two words, flee immorality. Our bodies are members of Jesus Christ himself. When we immorally attach our bodies, even if it's in our minds, we're committing horrible acts against him because he doesn't get to not be part of that whole thing flee immorality we're part of christ the very temple of the holy spirit could you imagine if you thought about 
some of like whatever a person might do or think when they're when they're in, involved in pornography, that you're dragging the Holy Spirit into that with you. Perfect and holy God, you've made yourself His temple, and then you defile it in such a way, with Him inside. Who you connect your body with, you also connect to Christ and to the church. I don't know the full implications of what that means, but I think it's got a lot to do with why the scriptures say when you got somebody who wants to behave like that, put them out. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. But immorality, or any impurity, or greed must not even be named among you. So, you speak, the, the Bible speaks to the individual, to me, Pat Brady personally, but it also speaks to the collection of saints, all of us together, must not be even named among the collective group of us, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. No inheritance for immoral people. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Immorality here, in, in this, really every place you see it, it's not, unless it calls out a specific thing like fornication. Immorality is drawn from the Greek word or some form of the Greek word porneia. I think that's where our English word pornography comes from. And, and it speaks to immorality, sexual immorality, in a very general sense. Uh, it must not, immorality must not be named among you. So within us, within when, when the saints gather together, anybody that would behave immor- immorally is way out of order. That's a particular thing that shouldn't even be named among us. No moral person has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Again, let no one deceive you. And frankly, be careful not to deceive yourself with your own rationalizations, right? Teresa's not yelling at me, but you know she's being pretty strong with me when I'm having a fit with the guy in the car next to me. And... There's something going on inside of me that's telling me to cut it out. And there's something going on inside of me that wants to open the door and go have a, a closer word with that guy. And, and there's something inside of me that's wanting to rationalize why that's okay. There's nobody deceiving me like Teresa's not saying, go get him, tiger. You know, whoo, my husband's a fighter. <laughs> it's shameful. But somehow I'm trying to rationalize it in the moment. And I'm telling you, the minute you say okay the first time, the second time's easier. And the third time's easier. And the fourth time, you don't even think about it anymore. And sooner or later, that area of your thinking has been given over by God to its own depravity. So the first time, man, deal with it. It came up twice. I'm just wondering, you know, I like to think that sometimes somebody's going to do me wrong in a car and I'm not going to react. Sometimes I don't, but my point is this. You've got to deal with it every time like you want it to be the last time. 
Otherwise, you're, you'll start to build up a fortress that allows you to continue to do that, and pretty soon you won't ever be, your conscience will stop bugging you about that, and you'll have given over a piece of your thinking to the devil. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. <laughs> if there was guy verses like this, I'd read them to you, I promise. First Timothy chapter 2, 9 and 10. I hate it when it starts in the middle of a sentence. <laughs> in like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modern apparel. Modern. <laughs> There's a Freudian slip. In modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Men need to dress modestly as well. I would think that you know there are men who could dress in a certain way that could be a stumbling block to a lady, as easy as a woman could be a stumbling block to a man. But men, yeah, I know, not you and me, but somebody. <laughs> but men seem to stumble easier in this way. And ladies, the fashion world will try to draw you to use your physical stuff to gain approval. And, and actually even more than that, to gain you know, favor, I guess. Be careful not to be a stumbling block. Be careful. Like, people people would go into an Amish community and think those ladies are stupid. They don't, they don't fancy themselves up at all. They, they wear plain clothes. They keep their hair in a plain manner. They don't paint their faces, any of that kind of stuff. The men do the same. They all wear the same clothes. Nobody's going to get worked up over one Amish guy over another Amish guy because of the clothes that they wear. Don't you know that's because of this? It's how they honor God and how they keep themselves from dishonoring God by being a stumbling block to somebody else or stumbling over that. So be conscious that despite how the world dresses, and you say, well, man, I'm, you know, mine's not like that. The world is not the standard that you measure yourself against. You could, be, you could be pretty horrible and still be better than most of the world, right? The standard is that you, you cover yourself, clothe yourself in a, in a manner that's modest, that's not going to be a stumbling block to somebody else. I'm getting close. Revelation chapter 2. 20 through 23. This is, this is one of the letters, the seven letters to the church that Jesus literally dictated to John. If you ever want to get a sense for, you know, how does Jesus think, here he gives seven different churches a performance evaluation, and you can see what he likes and what he doesn't like. So this is uh, Jesus writing to the church at Thyatira, Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 20. Jesus speaking. But I have this against you, that you tolerate. Remember, there's, there's a personal thing, but there's also a corporate thing. But you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality, porneia, and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. 
And I will kill her children, not her biological children, but her followers. I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. So what are the issues? The issues first are the individuals that are committing acts of immorality. They need to repent. What's the second issue? The church itself having tolerance for these things. The church at Thyatira is aware of these things going on, and they're, they're just looking the other way. Oh, you know, we don't want everybody to go someplace else. I, I need somebody to put some money in the basket, or who knows whatever reason. Oh, I don't want to make them mad, you know. Maybe I can still minister to them. As a matter of fact, I had a conversation with a guy who was bragged up to be really awesome pastor. And... Um, his congregation was almost exclusively retired people. I had heard that lots and lots of retired people, let's say, you know, an old guy and an, the, the guy passes away and the wife is lonely and she, she has a relationship with another guy. Maybe he was a widower. But they don't get married because they want to keep their Social Security as big as it can possibly be and they'll lose some money if they get married. And I say, well... You know, I imagine you probably have to deal with that as people come into the church. He said, yeah, I don't deal with it because I, I, I want the opportunity to teach them. Like, I don't, I don't confront the fact that they're living immorally because if I do, they might leave the church. Can I just tell you, I'm done listening to that guy. Because the scripture is explicit about how you're supposed to handle that situation and he's made up a better way, and he's rationalized to himself that it's better for those people if I just tolerate and don't confront their immorality, they'll be better off because they get to hear me talk about all other things, or I don't know. But at that point, I'm done asking that guy to counsel me on how to be a good pastor. What could I learn from him? I don't want to learn from that guy because he's not surrendered to the Scriptures. God is still graceful, right? He says, Jezebel... This isn't a spirit. This is a person. I'm not saying there's not a Jezebel spirit, but this is a person. And he gave her time to repent. He, he, he convicted her through her conscience. He did all whatever God does, but she didn't want to repent. So now comes the consequence. Throw them on a bed of sickness. Give them great tribulation. Kill them with pestilence. This is God. This is Jesus himself describing his actions towards unrepentant, immoral, immoral church people. You say, well, God wouldn't do that. He's God. He's against sickness. I'm like, well, okay. Except for it says right here that he told her that she needs to repent. He waited for her to repent. He waited for them to repent, but they didn't want to. They liked the whole you know, thing that they got going on. So he is going to do this. Sickness, tribulation, pestilence. Why? So the church will know. He said that himself. And I think to lead them to repentance. You want to stop being sick and tormented? Repent. Stop fighting with your God. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 9 through 13. This is God, through the Apostle Paul, instructing the church. I wrote you in my letter, ready for this? Here we go. Not to associate with the moral people. (laughs) 
So, so you got these old people in your church, immoral old people. Is God saying leave them in there? He's saying don't associate with them. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. I don't know whether the hair on your neck, back of your neck went up when I told you the story about my friend who wanted me to be his mentor and... We're talking a little bit. Doesn't go to this church. And all of a sudden, I know he has a relationship with a woman. They're not married. I'm like, are you having sex with her? Whoa. Are you kidding me? Are you having sex with her? You don't understand when she gets passionate. It's, it's, I'm like, shut up. What are you doing? You know it's wrong. But I, but I said, listen, I love you, and I'm going to pray for you. you. You don't cease to be my friend. Are you ready to repent? I don't know. I said, okay. The next conversation we have is going to start like this. Hello, Pat? Yes. I've repented. Awesome! When can I be your mentor? But until then, I can't even associate with you. You and I are to have nothing to do with each other. How do I know? Because I just read it right there to you. You say, but that doesn't seem kind and loving like Jesus. I'm like, he wrote this. He knows what's best for that guy. And it's not me petting his monster and, and telling him, oh, it's okay, I understand. We can talk about other things. It's like, you need to repent. You need to do it now. What you're doing is not only bad for you, it's bad for her. You think you love this woman? And you're going to bring her into this kind of a relationship? What kind of man are you? You need to stop right now. I don't know. I said, then we're done. I love you. I mean, I said these words. I'm telling you, I'm not trying to be a nice guy. I want to be a nice guy. I want to understand. I want to embrace the guy. I want to walk him through his troubles. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says don't associate with any so-called brother. Is he a Christian or not? I don't know. That wouldn't be a good indicator that the Holy Spirit lives inside of him. But I'm not judging that. I'm just saying, you call yourself a brother? If you were the world, we can have lunch. I'll counsel you all you want. Not talking about that. We're talking about a so-called, which could be an actual, brother. Say amen. Amen. Okay. Because it's going to come up, I promise you. And if it comes up, listen. The way it's supposed to come up is when you're aware of it, it's between you and a person. It's not between me and that person. It's between you and that person. Because, see, if you confront that person and they repent, it says you've won them back. Nobody has to know that they were doing a bad thing. There's stages. Jesus, it's uh, Matthew chapter 18, I think, if you want to go look it up. Step one, you confront it. Step two, bring a few more witnesses with you. Step three, put them before the church. Step four, put them out. Love them, pray for them, tell them the door's always open, but your leaven is going to leaven this lump and we won't have it because the scripture says so. Bad character corrupts good morals. Bad company, thank you, corrupts good morals. Okay. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler. So at least, you know, if you're an immoral person, you have company, idolaters and covetous people and revilers and drunkards and such. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging? Hear this, because the devil wants you to think wrong on this one too. 
For what have I to do with judging outsiders, the world? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. And it's in all capital letters, because it's probably referencing an Old Testament scripture, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Is there wiggle room in there? I don't see it. It seems pretty clear to me. We had somebody who was doing that, living with a woman, a man and a woman living together. The woman was married legally to somebody else. I confronted it. They tried to tell me, well, in our hearts we're actually married. Yeah, but on paper she's still married. You know this is wrong, and you would have crucified anybody for doing this before it was something you wanted to do yourself. What was the response? I get a text message. Your services are no longer required. I don't want your conviction. I want to do what I want, and I'll just rationalize it myself why it's okay. All right. Final scripture. Psalm 24. This is also, this, is, this, this scripture is referenced, it's multiple times in the Old Testament, but it's also referenced in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 10. Psalm 24 and verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. But you think maybe that's not the people, but it goes on. The world and those who dwell in it. God is sovereign over the world. God established the world. God established every creature that lives in the world. God's sovereignty over that world is how that world is to conduct itself. If it doesn't, God is sovereignly going to judge it. So, it's funny. I had this shirt on today. Look at I didn't think about this. Oh, I get stiff when I sit in the chair. Even more padding. Look at my shirt. See it? It was given to me last Sunday. Isn't that cool? How do you know? So, I, I had this. It was in there from last week. I said, Trace, where's that T-shirt I got? I'm going to wear that. And then as I'm walking across the parking lot, it's like right here it says, how do I know? How do I know that there are absolute morals that apply to everyone all the time? How do I know? Because the one and only sovereign God says so. That's how I know. Because he defines them in his word and in the conscience of his image bearers. That's all humanity bears his image. And he will judge every single person by them, Christian or not, truth. That's truth. Somebody can say that homosexuality is okay. They can say whatever they want, but they aren't going to be the ultimate judge. They can say fornication is okay because that's, it's, it's accepted by the culture. They can say what they want. But at the end of time, at the end of the day, every single person, whether they believe in God or they don't believe in God, whether they think he understands or they don't think he understands, every single person will be judged by God according to what he wrote in his book that he wrote in your heart and your conscience and mind they'll be judged. There won't be a lawyer who makes a good case that says, but hear this, you didn't understand how they were abused as a child. Hear this, it, 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 they're going to get judged based upon their deeds. And, and their moral deeds are going to say how they're going to get judged. And their lying and their idolatry and their covetousness and all the other things. But that's how I can tell you I know. Because the scriptures are true and God will judge everybody. It doesn't matter what they think. Amen? Amen. You know, that's kind of a hard word, but what favor would we do for each other if we tried to say something different? Because nothing's going to change at the end of the time when you stand before God 
if I told you wrong. You're still going to be accountable to his truth because what I told you isn't what you're accountable to. What he says is what you're accountable to. Okay? All right. So 1220. Wow. I'm glad I wasn't looking at the clock. (laughs) We're going to have a prayer tonight. It'll be about this presidential situation. You're welcome to come. I don't know when it is, but I'll tell you when it is, as soon as I know what it is, and then we'll get together and pray. Amen? Amen. 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 Father God, thank you that your word is true. Thank you that that you do put the little uh, inflatable things in the gutters of the bowling alley so that you can keep us. We know where we're supposed to be because your word says so. Help us, Lord, to not be people that would um, uh, help each other to stay inside those boundaries through anger and bitterness and judgment, but that we would judge sin, we, w- we would recognize it, acknowledge it, and then speak the truth in love and restore a person in a spirit of gentleness back into your good graces, that we would be known by our love for one another, even when we have to correct one another. In Jesus' name.